Well, my name is Grady. Uh, I'm the pastor here at Maricopa Springs. And before I get into my message, I, I just have to say, not, not in any form of false humility, but I, I sincerely did not deserve that applause. I, I was finding myself reflecting yesterday that uh, I hardly did anything for this holiday gift store. So props to you guys. Thank you. Um, if you're a visitor with us this morning, we, we took on this project to give uh, gifts to the children who attend this school. We um, sold them and then donated the funds back to the school, but we sold gifts worth 10 bucks at $2 each, and uh, it was an incredibly meaningful experience. And I was thinking this morning just, what a wonderful thing. We serve the God who gives, and he gives without any expectation of receiving in return. And I hope that our church is the church that is willing to give without receiving anything in return so that people will be drawn to this God who gives, to worship him and to know him. Um, So thank you guys for taking part in that. Thank you for making it happen. Seriously, you guys are amazing. If anybody deserved that round of applause, it was you. And I would encourage you to pray for the people who were touched by our church yesterday Um, You know, I wish I could share all the stories with you of just people that I talked to. We don't have time this morning, but pray for them. Pray that they would come to our church, that they would watch the Buck Denver DVD that we gave them that lays out the good news of Jesus pretty clearly. Um, Pray that other things that we do in this community would touch them in meaningful ways. So please do that. Well, turning a rather abrupt corner, I would like to start this morning with kind of a, a survey Uh, to satisfy my own curiosity, okay? So I want to find out who the pessimists are and who the optimists are in the room, and if you're married, your spouse can kind of keep you accountable here, okay? (laughs) This is a safe place. There's no condemnation. This is just, again, a quiz to satisfy my own curiosity, so you can can be honest, okay? You know the, the question, should I give you the bad news first or the good news first? You've heard that, I'm sure. So I've thought about this, and uh, I'm, I'm curious in this room. Raise your hand. Again, nice and bold. How many of you like to get the bad news first? The bad news first. Okay, so I'm torn, really, as I've thought about this. I'm very torn. You're either pessimists because you just expect the bad news anyway, so the bad news sort of meets your expectations for the way life is. Or are you optimists because you like to end on a good note with some good news? All right, now the other side, raise your hand nice and high again, be bold. How many of you like to get the good news first? See, again, I'm, pr- I'm prone to think that you're the optimist, but again, I'm torn. Maybe you like to get the good news first because that just fits your worldview. The world is a good place, and so the good news just makes sense. Or are you pessimists because you like to end on a bad note and just carry that through the rest of the day? I'm not entirely sure. Maybe I just need to get to know you a little bit more and my curiosity will be satisfied. In any case, this morning, I'm going to give you the bad news first, and then I'm going to unleash you on the world with the good news. So I'm sorry to disappoint the pessimists in the room who like it to be the other way around. If you have your Bible, join me uh, in opening to John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible and you're a visitor with us this morning, we would love to give you one. So after the service, there's a table in the back. You can stop by that table and we will set you up with a Bible. 
John chapter 1, and if you don't have one, you can just listen along with me. I'm going to read the first 18 verses here, okay? It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let me pray. God, we thank you for this wonderful message of the word, your son Jesus, become flesh so that we might see you, so that we might receive grace upon grace, so that we might know truth and grace, so that we could see your glory and know you. We thank you for this wonderful light. We pray that you would illumine our hearts with this light this morning. Amen. There is so much rich theology In this passage from John, so many ways that we could approach these few verses about the divinity of Jesus and just exploring the depth of the divinity of Jesus. But I I want us to zero in on the good news and the bad news, the truth and the grace revealed in Jesus, this child whose birth it is that we celebrate on Christmas. And in these verses, we find the tragic circumstances that surround the nature of man that necessitated the coming of Christ. In essence, it's in reality your story and mine. We're told why Jesus came. So let's actually start in verse 17. It says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The truth that Jesus reveals is that the law that God gave to Moses left us condemned. In short, the Ten Commandments, we can sum it up, the law. God gave his people a set of morals, morals which revealed the very character of God himself. Not arbitrary rules, but things that stemmed from his very nature. Morals which showed his people what his expectations are for humanity. But knowing God's moral law, far from helping us become more godly and achieve his standard, this law only showed us how bankrupt and broken our human hearts are. I'm going to make you turn again in your Bibles today. Romans chapter 3. It's to your right. 
verses 19 through 20 in Romans chapter 3. It says this, Romans 3, verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. It's that little part at the end here that I want you to really notice. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now you're not too far from this. Turn just a couple more chapters to your right to Romans chapter 7. In verses 7 through 8, Romans 7, 7 through 8, it says, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Okay, this sounds kind of confusing, so let me try and simplify it in terms that are a little bit more familiar, okay? This is the don't touch the red button idea. You know what I'm talking about, right? You're sitting in a fancy new car, just imagine, and, and the, maybe it's the sales guy next to you, he says, oh yeah, and whatever you do, don't touch the red button. And of course, as soon as he says that, you wonder, why not? Why can't I touch the red button? I really, I want to touch the red button. I'm going to touch the red button. Don't tell me what I can't do. I'm going to touch it, right? And as soon as something is prohibited, we desire it. The depraved human heart can't help but want what is off limits. I see this all the time in my kids. It actually happened just this morning before church. And if you have kids, you've been through this, right? Uh, I've seen all kinds of prohibitions I make around my house become temptation. Here's a recent one, right? Don't touch the ornaments on the tree, please. That's a law in my house. They're precious. They're breakable. But when I leave the room and I return only moments later, what are my children doing? Playing with the ornaments. And why? Why are they doing it? Of course, to some degree, it's because they're curious, but to another degree, it's simply because I told them not to. And I say to the kids, don't touch the ornaments. And of course, what do they do? They touch the ornaments. Similarly, aggravating, but maybe a little bit less so, that same kind of prohibition. Don't touch the ornaments, right? And then they look me in the eyes and they do this thing. And they get just just millimeters away from the ornament to see how close can I get to breaking the law without actually breaking the law. Okay, now in a child, this kind of behavior, it's, it's kind of cute. It's even sort of funny, sort of. But the point is, we can see it even in a kid. The human heart is dark. It even defines the innocence of a beautiful child, right? I mean, if you doubt that, I've heard somebody say on a funny note, did you ever have to teach your kids to lie? No, they figured that one out on their own, right? 
And we can't help but desire the sort of things that we know we shouldn't desire. This is the idea behind Romans 3, Romans 7 that we looked at. God gave the law to the Jews through Moses so that the whole world would see clearly this bad news. God's standard is perfect holiness. The sting of the truth is bad news that we stand condemned before God by his law. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. And this is what John is essentially saying. Go back to John chapter 1 with me. A couple different places. First, verses 4 and 5. It says, in him, that's Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Well, this is good news, right? Jesus is the light and life of men. He shines in the darkness to bring light. And the darkness has not overcome his light. What a wonderful truth that the light of God prevails. But the implication is that the darkness has certainly tried to overcome the light, right? The darkness has not overcome, but it has tried. And think about our world today. It's a place of darkness and chaos, right? I mean, almost weekly, aren't we reminded of that by some kind of tragedy? People suppress the truth of God's light and life in Christ. There is a whole lot of good in the world because God's grace permeates the world and he is gracious. But the truth is, the world is a crazy place and it's making every effort to suppress the truth of God's light and life in Christ. A silly example, but it comes to light every time this year, is you can't even say Merry Christmas anymore without fear of making somebody... Uh, uncomfortable and hurting their feelings, right? The darkness hates the light. And while it's good news that the darkness has not overcome the light, the sting of the truth is that the darkness of humanity has tried to overcome the light. Now look at verses 10 and 11. It says, He, again Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. How can this be? How can this be? God who made us, God who sustains us, God whose creative genius gave us minds to think and reason and discovery, now denied by the very creatures whom he created. It's absurd, isn't it? I heard an analogy once that I thought was brilliant. Humans denying God as their maker is like a small child who sits on her father's lap and then slaps him in the face. Do you see the irony there? The child couldn't even reach the face of the father to slap him if she wasn't sitting on his lap. And humanity is totally codependent on God. We sit securely in his lap. And what do we do with our privileged position? We reach up and we strike him. We deny him. We curse him. We refuse his presence, his grace, his mercy. He came to his own people and they denied him, rejected him. He was scorned by his own creation who was so blinded by sin and by pride that they couldn't see God in the miracle of Jesus 
And again, another interesting thing I heard recently that, that struck me along these lines. What could God do with a rebellious people like us if he comes doing nothing miraculous? If Jesus lived a tor- totally ordinary life, he was not born to a virgin. He was not the answer to thousands of years of prophecy. He was just an ordinary man who somehow was also God. Then, of course, we would deny that he was God, wouldn't we? There would be nothing special about him. He would be so ordinary, we would never think to call him God. So, instead, God ordains that he has a miraculous birth. He lives a miraculous life. He does incredible things while he walks so that we would see the power of God at work in the world through Jesus and come to know him as God. And what do people say? Well, of course, it must be false because nobody can do miracles. So do you see the catch-22? No matter what happens, people are bound to deny him. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So here's the bad news to satisfy all of you pessimists out there. The sting of truth revealed in Jesus. We are condemned Because we break the law, we fail, we sin, we fall far short of God's perfect standard of holiness. And add insult to injury, God sends a savior, light in the darkness, and we assault the light. We deny it, we defame it, ultimately, his own creation would be responsible for the death of God. And so the word becomes flesh And it brings the sting of truth. Man is lost in darkness. We do not know God. We are lost in our sin. We are so blind and so lost that even when he comes to us in the miracle of the manger, we don't receive or see him. And so this child, I think, is first the sting of truth. Mankind is condemned. But that's not all that... He is for those who receive him because this child is also the salve of grace. Let's not be pessimistic. Let's not err in our understanding of who Jesus is. For for from the fullness of this child, John tells us, we have received grace upon grace. The sting of truth and the salve of grace, they both come through Jesus Christ. What is the salve of grace then that heals the sting of our bankrupt and condemned status before God? It is the fact that this child reveals to us the glory of the Father who judges mankind for sin and then ordains that his own beloved Son would stand in our place for that condemnation and pay the penalty on our behalf. And so what a revelation of the glory of our God who justly condemns sin for the evil atrocity that it is and then gives his own son to pay the penalty for us. And who, who is like our God that he would bear this burden of sin for us? Turn with me back to Romans. Now that you know where it is, Romans 5 right in the middle of where I had you before, verses 20 through 21. It says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, 
In other words, our human hearts were bankrupt in sin and darkness before God gave his law. Even before he gave his law, we were in that place. And God's law then, the revelation of his moral standards, all it really did was show us just how sinful we are, right? The sting of truth. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus, this Christ child, he is good news. He is the salve of grace to the sting of truth. And we stand condemned before God as sinners, but Jesus, the righteous one, through his sinless life, his obedient death, and his triumphant resurrection, he has covered us with the salve of grace. And John says, grace upon grace. And so what is this grace that's been revealed in Jesus? Why is it a salve? How does it help? How does it heal? Let's touch on that for just a couple minutes. Three things. First, we see that God is able to confront our rebellion and rejection of him with an inexhaustible capacity to forgive and bless us. God is able to confront our rebellion and rejection of him with an inexhaustible capacity to forgive and bless us. God has not acted with judgment or anger in spite of our sin and lawlessness. Even though this precious child of his would one day be nailed to a tree by people who hated him, God's response is forgiveness. God forgave then and he forgives now. Since the coming of Christ, God has been patiently waiting for 2,000 years to show how slow he is to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. If you've ever wondered why God has waited so long to send Jesus back to take the saints home to be with God, the reason is because he has an inexhaustible capacity to forgive and bless. And he's proving it while he waits these thousands of years for sinful men and women to come to him in repentance. And on the last day, nobody will be able to point a finger at God and accuse him of being swift to bring judgment on sinners, right? No, the nations instead will see that our God is gracious because he has waited patiently for people to come out of the darkness into the light of Christ. And we will marvel at this gift of grace that he has given in his son. We will marvel at how patiently he Patiently, he waited for people to come to him. And honestly, I'm frustrated to death that he is taking so long. If he hired me to do some consulting work, I would tell him he is long past due. He should have been here a long time ago. But he waits and he forgives through thousands of years of human sin and pride so that the world might see that he has an inexhaustible capacity to love and bless and forgive. And he measures out this limitless forgiveness, blessing and love, not just commonly to the whole world, although he does that, but specifically to you and me each and every day. He is giving that. And he did it in the manger when he gave his son. He did it on the cross when he died. And he does it today as he sustains us with his Holy Spirit. 
Grace means that God gives and forgives and he blesses those who trust him. Second, the salve of grace in Jesus shows us that through God's initiating action, our alienation from him has been turned into unmerited acceptance. I have to say that again. The salve of grace in Jesus shows us that through God's initiating action, our alienation from him has been turned into unmerited acceptance. God initiates the action. God has done this thing. Christmas is a reminder, not that we went to God, but that God came to us, the one who was in the beginning. He became flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. And although it's true that we are condemned before God because of our sin, the message that Jesus brought was not condemnation. It was acceptance. Undeserved, unmerited, unwarranted acceptance. I don't deserve this. You don't deserve this, but God has given it still. And John uses an incredible word in chapter 1, verse 12. Look there real quick. He says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Whereas we were once enemies, now we are family. And God has poured his grace to turn our alienation into radical acceptance. We belong now to God as heirs and children of the promises of his grace. Okay, finally, to disappoint all of the pessimists in the room, the salve of grace destroys the sting of truth. God's grace means that the law has been completed in Christ. He did what we could never do. So that everyone who belongs to God as a child is no longer under the law. We are under grace. The condemnation heaped upon us by our inability to keep God's law and resist sin has been completely annihilated in Jesus. It is not just that we have good news that is better than the bad news. We have good news that obliterates the bad news. Maybe you know that Catholics, they believe in purgatory, which means that after you die, you have to go and suffer for a while after this life while penance is made for the sins that weren't covered by the cross. And we don't believe anything of the sort. Grace upon grace means that it has been done by Jesus, all by him for us, And whatever condemnation that the law might sling at us for our sin and rebellion against God, it has been completely swallowed in the death of Christ, the endless grace of God revealed in his son Jesus. And for those who are in Christ, the law has no claim on us. There's no penalty left to be paid. It has no rights over us. It has no place to judge or condemn because Jesus has revealed a new law, the forgiveness of sins through faith in him, the freedom for captives. And so the salve of grace, it trumps the sting of truth. It obliterates the bad news. So as we consider the wonder of Jesus at Christmas, let me end with just a brief word to the optimists in the room. Verse 14 It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the word that is used here, 
that says dwelt. The, 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 the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It literally means tabernacled. God tabernacled among us. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was this portable temple that the Jews constructed to be the dwelling place of God. And wherever they went, the tabernacle went with them. It was, so to speak, the very house of God among his people. It was the sign of his presence, the sign of his unmerited favor, the sign of his acceptance. The tabernacle was God dwelling among the Israelites. And to capture this wonderful idea of God living so intimately close to his people, John uses this very word. He says, The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we see the whole Old Testament idea of the presence of God dwelling among his people come rushing into the manger. And that's some serious optimism, isn't it? A serious salve of grace. God wanted us to know his unmerited acceptance, his forgiveness for sins, his blessing for all time, his peace and goodwill, the good news of our unmerited, favored position as his children. And so he dwelt among us. He tabernacled. He came to show us all of these things in his own son. And from the fullness of this child, we have received grace upon grace. 